I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for poems that interest us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Karina Kopp, a New York-based writer and theater artist, author of The Green Ray, Ugly Duckling Press 2015, which has been described as a kaleidoscopic subversion of univocal emotion, unquote, and a number of chapbooks, including All Stock Must Go and Miracle Mare, whose poetry, performance texts, and critical writing can be found in many venues, among them Bomb, the Claudius App, Fence, Boston Review, and the Poetry Foundation's Harriet, and who has been a curator at the Segway Foundation. And by Laura Sims, a poet whose recent powerful book is My God, Is This a Man? A minimalist account of the language of killers, which Maggie Nelson calls harrowing, probing, troubling, surprising, and also gorgeous. Also author of Stranger and Restraint, both fence books and a number of chapbooks, and poetry published in Crayon, Colorado Review, Rain Taxi, and elsewhere, who teaches creative writing, literature, and composition at NYU and co-edits Instance Press. And by Richard Deming, a poet and a theorist currently at Yale University whose work explores the intersections of poetry, philosophy, and visual culture. His book, Let's Not Call It Consequence, published by Shearsman, received the 2009 Norma Farber First Book Award from the Poetry Society of America, author also of Listening on All Sides Toward an Emersonian Ethics of Reading, who has released podcasts on Stan Brackage and avant-garde film and another on the rediscovery of the 1929 film Monkey's Moon, which I watched the other day, by the way, made by Kenneth McPherson and Breyer and H.D., and who is a regular contributor to Art Forum and who, with Nancy Cole, co-edits the New Haven-based Phylum Press. Richard, thank you for coming all the way from New Haven. Thanks, Al. How was, how was the trip? Uh, it Amtrak. Was nice. It was nice. Very I civilized. Great. And and you guys both came from Brooklyn, am I right? But I separately. Guess, yeah. Different parts, though. Different parts Good. of Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and for, I don't think this is your first time at the Writer's House, but first time maybe for all of you on Poem Talk? It's yes. my first time yeah. here. Mine, too. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Welcome. Thank you. I hope you. this is yes, the first thanks. of many. Yeah, me, <laughs> thank too. Thank you. Me, too. Well, today, um, we four <laughs> have come together to talk about one of Helen Adams' poem songs. I don't, I just made up that genre, but we'll just call it poem songs. It's called Cheerless Junkies Song. Penn Sound's Helen Adam Page consists so far of three items. First, a full recording of the 1977 performance aired on WBAI of the 1963 lyric play called San Francisco's Burning, and a recording of Adam being interviewed by Susan Howe on Pacifica Radio in the late 70s. That's second. And thirdly, finally, our poem, Cheerless Junkies Song. Adam performed the piece on film, which is available on YouTube as a clip from Ron Mann's documentary, Poetry in Motion of 1981. So here now is the audio of that video clip, Helen Adam performing Cheerless Junkies Song. Cheerless Junkies Song. 
Seeking love upon a day, a day of summer's pride. I left Long Island suburbs for the Lower East Side. The train, it roared and thundered, and I sang above its scream. There's a cockroach coming towards me, but it cannot spoil my dream. Love, love, and LSD, it shall not spoil my dream. Blue moonlight over Tompkins Square, drop out, tune in, turn on. The village all around me and Long Island suburbs gone. In a pad far down on 4th Street, soon I welcome the approach of the rat that loves the twilight and the nimble-footed roach. Love, love at eventide, the grey rat and the roach. I'm always where the action is. I blow my mind all day. While on Long Island's tennis courts, the bland suburbans play. And I was born suburban. Who would ever credit that? No chick who saw me frogging with the cockroach and the rat. It's ho for horse or methadrine to spark the swinging mood. While rats run up my trouser legs, roaches share my food. Rats and roaches nuzzle me when it's dark and hot. Love, love, it's all the same, mixing speed and pot. First a rat and then a roach are both as like as not. If I can't find a fix tonight, my marrow bones will rot. Goodbye, Transcendent Tompkins Square. I haven't long to stay. A double jolt of heroin and I'll be on my way. Let rats and roaches bury me. They'll bury me in state. As they march from the Rosano Bridge down to the Golden Gate. Clear across the continent. Yonder let me lie in the gutters of hate Ashbury to freak the passers-by till all the tourists gape and say, Brother, he died high. Let rat tales write my epitaph, Brother, he died high. Wow, what a spirit she has. Uh, Laura, describe that spirit if you can. Oh, wow. It is. um, In my reading about Adam, someone said she was possessed by the song, and that is the spirit. I mean, this this song is lighter than some of her other ballads, or it feels lighter, but definitely possessed, jubilant. Yeah, I actually had a note that it feels like she's already all spirit when she's performing oh, this. Great. I mean, yeah. um, kind of this collapsing of like misery and enchantment to yeah. like become all spirit, this sort yeah. of like ethos of her interest in magic. And, but I mean, I don't know. I don't, I think they're inextricable. The performance is so incredible. Like the visuals too. Yeah. What's it like to encounter this as text? I mean, how much different do you think it's going to be? Well, that was a question I had. Did you guys watch it first or have you, did you read, you it, read first. it first? Yeah, so yeah, I had I different rhythms in my head. Yeah, it changed and completely now for me. Gone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Richard, um, I'm turning to you, um, but we're all going to talk about this. So she really, she joined the 
radical, alternative, irrationalist, mystical scene, which, given those general adjectives, she could fit in almost any way, but in San Francisco in particular, the Bay Area, um, and then had affiliations with the Beats, was older than them, but, um, but she was interested in ballads. Mm-hmm. Not interested in the Whitmanian line of Ginsburg, though she and Ginsburg knew each other. So I guess I'm not asking a literary historical question. I'm asking a poetics question uh, or a poetic question about the ballad. How does the ballad in the 20th century become part of a countercultural scene? Because it would, it would seem that the ballad actually uh, evokes traditionalism and a looking back and not a breaking free. What do you do with that? apparent problem for me what's fascinating is someone who you know the first poetry reading i ever saw was alan ginsburg and and you know singing uh with his harmonium was he playing uh he wasn't he was doing it a cappella, i guess we'd mm-hmm. say um yeah. this was at an amherst and um it's very clear how much he actually took from her in terms of uh thinking of that of the singing as the as part of that performance and that and so just vocally it's similar and he was saying how in that uh, that workshop in the 50s in San Francisco that he had taken up from Duncan and she was there that he you know he was trying to very aggressively disabuse her of the of the ballad form and then and she was um inflexible she would not budge from it and that eventually he was convinced by her to take to adopt that and take it on, I mean, I think that there's a lot of things that are happening. Well, first of all, you know, the thinking about um, Dylan uh, in the '60s taking up the ballad form as well as and I mean, Joan Baez, yeah, 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 for instance. And then I think that these um, that these uh, forces aren't uh, negligible in terms of of giving a kind of permission to look at the ballad form. And I also think that that um, st- that it was a way of connecting to tradition. I mean, you know, Ginsburg, we'll say Ginsburg and Duncan especially were were interested in, in tradition. But I think that it was a way of sort of circumventing the, the weight of a romantic inheritance or a, uh, inheritance of the metaphysical poets. Um, and yet it was a, tr- a tradition that's coming through a kind of interest in the vernacular that that is part of her sense of the ballad. So it's, I mean, it's, yes, it's a tradition, but it's not high culture. It's the folk tradition. I think of Helen Adam as a radical poet. I think of her as um, challenging. Um, and yet we have this story, as Richard aptly described it, of a uh, trying to talk the beats and San Francisco Renaissance people into using ballads. But that doesn't quite account in itself for the, um, the witchy outrider that she was. The, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I think of Ann Waldman as because she pick up, picked up the ballad maybe more directly from Allen Ginsberg. Mm-hmm. But I think of the relationship between what uh, Ann Waldman will do in a performance of a ballad and Helen Adam is connected. So can yeah. you add that to the mix that Richard started to stir? Yeah, I mean, um, so Helen Adam was also like later on, you know, in New York, like at the Poetry Project and and sort of at the, f- if not the forefront of like performance poetry. So in fact, the influence that I was just describing exactly. might have been very direct. Yeah, I, I'm sure it was. Yeah, I'm sure Anne saw her uh, with, wasn't, I'm sure she was close with her too. Um 
I mean, and Kristen Prevole, like, I kind of feel like... Who is the scholar of yeah. Helen Adam, right? Yeah, and this amazing book, this Helen Adam reader, like, uh, you know, she said she started working on it in Buffalo in, like, 83, and it came out in 2007, and I remember it a being... A long job. A really long job. I mean, there's so much um, material, and there's so much material that's not even here. Can you spell the Kristen's last name so listeners who aren't aware of this work can easily find it? Yeah, P-R-E-V-A-L-L-E-T. You did it without even looking at the book. (laughs) So, Laura, just to sort of cap off this part of our Mm -hmm. conversation, can you generalize about the influence that Helen Adam has had on those experimental poets who are using the ballad? I mean, what's the the overall influence she's had on this problem, I guess I would call Hmm. it? Um, I mean, what what struck me about her work and her ballads, not necessarily this particular ballad, but in general, um, is that yes, they were they were traditional formally, but the content of many of them is pretty subversive. Yeah. You know, they're feminist rewritings of mm. folk tales, fairy tales. So, you know, she's a precursor in that way to much of the feminist experimental poetry, I think, that's that's been written. So, Especially in short, content, song. content is, yeah. is a key to the radicalism here. I'm sure. sorry, Corey. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, also, just in terms of song and incorporating that yeah. into, like, into your work, I think, you yeah. know, Leanne Brown, obviously, mm-hmm. is, like, very much a Helen Adam fan mm-hmm. and... Um, Lending that to like Kathy Wagner, yeah, who sings now, and it is this strange kind of like radical um, interruption. I feel like, yeah, why? Yeah, I think I know that it is, but can <laughs> anyone say, Richard? Why is the singing? I I used the phrase witchy outrider before, okay. <laughs> but this why is that an an intervention? How could that be? Well, it's a complicated question because I think. We're at a point now where uh, so much of what we would count as as radical or alternative or avant-garde poetry is actually now we look back and that now seems dominant or that's what people pay attention to. So if I think of that, if I think of her in terms of um, reading alongside any of the people in, in Ron Mann's film, it doesn't seem... It doesn't seem avant-garde. It seems of a piece. Uh, if I think of her as reading at the same time as, say, John Hollander, then then maybe then it yes. does. Yeah, yes. maybe it does. But even but even Hollander is interested in the same sorts of forms as well. One of the things that that remains interest uh, a kind of interesting question to me is that is that question of timeliness, um, which is is uh, happening on two levels. One that I do think. That for me, the reading is is very persuasive. Uh, th- that it really is a performance, and that when it's on the page, uh, that it it didn't work for me as well. And in fact, when I was you know really breaking down the form, I felt like it was it was it wasn't as tight as it could be. And she made changes as she's singing that I that that don't necessarily mm-hmm. go along with the line break and things like that. So I think that that uh, that's a fascinating thing that it really is that it lives between um, it, it really is a kind of living art and that, and we might say that it's radical in that way that the ballad is this place between uh, a kind of song and story is it necessarily radical I don't know but it is destabilizing um, and then how do we disseminate this and and then the question that I would maybe hopefully will will build to. 
um, is does does is this interesting for its historical moment, or is it does it have a lasting uh, hold on us? Yeah, can we? Which one should we try of those two? <laughs> I mean, can we talk about her in that moment for? Yeah, a minute? let's do it. Yeah, because also there's the this idea that she's performing it as a spell to put people under. Um, I don't think is necessarily looked at as, um, or like these days, is something that peop- a lot of people <laughs> wouldn't consider to be. So of its moment, late 50s, 60s, if someone gave a performance and really wanted to mesmerize you, that wouldn't be seen as crazy. That would be something we might participate in. Yeah, I mean, like you were saying, in Poetry in Motion, I mean, like the Four Horsemen were doing that stuff. And it's so there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are that are mesmerizing in that way. Yeah. Yeah. That And less so these days, maybe. Let me try the historical side of Richard's question. And then, Laura, you respond in any way you like, either to tell me that's hogwash or add to it. Um, so it, if, if it's the mid to late 50s and we have we – are, people are trying to find an alternative way, one way to do that is to break forms and use the page as a field or – uh, try other speechifying versions of poetry uh, or to reach back to Whitman and, and, and really go be prior to modernism. To, you know, there are lots of options, the, so, the so-called new American menu of choices. But another way would be to reach further back in a way that Jer- Jerome Rothenberg at the time, who was a very young poet, was beginning to think about with ethnopoetics and his interest in surrealism and Dadaism led him back to um, what used to be called primitive poetry or oral poetry, the oral poetry tradition. Uh, And he used Kabbalah and other sources of irrationalism and mysticism to break away. It seems that Helen Adam, by going back via Scottish culture, by going back to uh, fatal romances, darkly sadistic sexual affairs, jealous lovers, and vengeful demons, which is what you get in the old ballad, is a way of using a form to tap into something that's prior to modernism mm-hmm. and prior to the tranquilized 50s in such a dramatic way that it seems very kind of what a, what an odd intervention to pull that so far back but as a slightly older or maybe actually more than slightly older scottish uh witchy outrider she gets to use the ballad as historically crazy way to do irrational and mystical work. Mm-hmm. How does mm-hmm. that sound? I'm, I don't know if that was very persuasive. That sounds right to me. When I was reading her, I was reminded of other ancient, or old at least, forms, um, like the lays of Marie de France, um, which I love and are also subversive in their way. Um, Japanese folk tales uh, where... Um, demons disguise themselves as women and, you know, destroy men. Um, so, I f- you know, I feel like her connectedness to those ancient forms is very powerful. And um, I can see it as a way of being transcendent during that time, um, during the 50s, but also even beyond that. Why don't we talk about the poem? Let's start anywhere. Let's see if our previous discussion about the ballad and Laura's comment about this historical reach, um, you know, bears out in the poem. What, what, what's happening in this poem? 
I mean, I think basically you could say, you know, it's the story of the young man with the dream of going to New York and how that is a fearful concept. And then, of course, he's validated in that fear by slowly um, succumbing to to drugs, I mean, as a, as like a scaffolding, but it feels also like the, the, if there's anything radical for me, it's, it's like that love is a threat to social order, that there's this like very much a larger thing at stake. Laura, is, is the, is the speaker's, the junkie's criticism of the suburbs supposed to be ironized because he's actually having such a crappy time and uh, I think so. Yeah. So, uh, so um, what is Helen Adams saying, if anything, well, that. I mean, to me, the speaker is, you know, this guy who wants to access the transcendence of the time, um, but he's going about it the wrong way. He's going about it, you know, through drugs. You know, drugs will give you this kind of immediate and temporary transcendence, but they're not the kind of visionary transcendence that I think Adam and other artists of her time valued. So she's moralizing about the drugs, but she's suggesting that there's still a radical yeah. visionary way to achieve what this junkie wants. Possibly. I don't know if she's, do you think she's I don't moralizing? Know. She's moralizing. Yeah. I wouldn't go that far, but I would say. She's not say, saying don't do drugs, no. but no, she's saying that's the wrong that's approach not to the transcendence. Ticket. Yeah. It's okay, not the last thing. The ticket is interesting because doesn't it end with San Francisco? Since it's been oh, yeah. set in New York, it seems almost like a westering. Right. That yeah. would be a 1930s word, but or a um, get in your jalopy and drive across country from New York to San Francisco beat word. What do we do, Richard, at, if anything, with the, the way this ballad ends with San Francisco? Because it's all been about this junkie in New York. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, uh, well, first, nowhere is safe. Uh, right. And you uh, thought San Francisco would be better than this. Well, but. I think, I mean, I think that that's part of I me, mean, especially since uh, there is something like, if, if repetition is part of the, not only in the end rhyme, or some of the end rhymes, um, but for instance, they'll bury me in state, uh, Barry gets picked up by Haight-Ashbury. Mm-hmm. Um, that there, but that, uh, you know, I'm not state hate. You know? Yeah. That I'm not really kidding when I said that, that, that nowhere safe, that there is, you can't drive away from this. And of course, these are the two nodes and that, um, of the alternative scene. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I, and I, I think that that's one of the terrific things about the, or using the form too, the ballad form is that it, it does have a moral tendency. Rats and roaches nuzzle me when it's dark and hot. Love, love, it's all the same, mixing speed and pot. First a rat and then a roach are both as like as not. If I can't find a fix tonight, my marrow bones will rot. Goodbye, Transcendent Tompkins Square. I haven't long to stay. A double jolt of heroin and I'll be on my way. Let rats and roaches bury me. They'll bury me in state. As they march from their Rosano Bridge down to the Golden Gate. Clear across the continent. Yonder, let me lie in the gutters of hate, Ashbury, to freak the passers-by. For me, I'm reading it as if it's like a portal through which she, because she was obsessed with the afterlife and with like, 
Anubis and these like mythological um, tropes that could, that she actually felt like um, affected her work so greatly that sometimes you know these characters would enter and exit her work and then she wouldn't actually be able to like put up a play if like she had taken a character out or so it feels like that's her way of like reaching. Some oh. sort of other audience, maybe like <laughs> I'm reading it along these lines, Corey. That's how exactly, I'm it. I really okay. feel that you're onto something here. Um, goodbye, transcendent Tompkins Square. The 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 junkie is going away now, um, dying, really. right? But what you have is, um, and 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 there were women at the time, and then later who were criticizing the beat narrative of crossing the country, of a clear cross the continent. You get here is the phrase. So going on the road, there's a westering, there's a manifest destiny, there's a, a maleness about driving hard and stopping at the women's houses to get apple pie and then continuing, <laughs> which is a beat story. And this is a friend and supporter, but also critic of the beat narrative and the beat form. So what she's doing is heading toward that heaven, that transcendence, that afterlife. But ironically and maybe satirically, it ends up to be Haight Ashbury freaking out the passersby who are In touring who are touring the so-called alternative tradition. And her junkie goes to San Francisco instead of to heaven, which is the wrong place, and uh, dies like a junkie. I mean, I really mm -hmm. think embedded in here is quite a critic mm -hmm. criticism of the literary history of Westering. Laura, what do you think of any of that? Hmm. <laughs> I can I can definitely see that. Um, again, for me, I see a stronger critique of the way this person is going about it, going about achieving that. But I can definitely see um, some irony around, you know, the idea of of the Western scene um, as Nirvana. But also in her own trajectory, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, yeah, she came back to New York. Right? She came back to New York, but I, what I've read is that she was longing for San Francisco. Oh. That she and her sister were were pretty miserable, like entertaining their own um, self mythologizing in like the Upper East Side. I, I mean, that sounds yeah. Maybe well, they were way, having fun also. Yeah, um, I mean, in a way, but she I think might they were be. really poor. Yeah. And, and so. maybe doing a little bit of the um, tweaking of the bourgeoisie and the suburbanism mm -hmm. themselves and then longing, yonder let me lie. I wish I could go back to where I was. Yeah, and she actually said in some sort of was a letter to, to Duncan about a Ginsburg reading, it was that someone had protested. Right, and um, she called mm -hmm. them a suburbanite or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah. Like I think worst she just really—it was insults. the worst. Was it just the worst? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then the, you have the Kathy Acker poem talk, and the, you mentioned that she says like um, the suburbs were just as as bad as the East Village. I mean, yeah. Like the, so yeah. In, exactly. in terms of like you know maybe this kind of impoverished, um, roach-infested yeah. awfulness. Can we talk about the roaches? Well, actually, and the not rats? in terms of that. But. <laughs> I just yes, yes, please let's. I just I don't know. They were my favorite part of the <laughs> of the poem. I just love how they um, proceed. You know, in the first stanza, there's a cockroach coming towards me, but it cannot spo spoil my dream. It's you know, it's disgusting. It's a cockroach, but as the poem progresses, the cockroaches and the rats become her like her familiars, her companions. Yes. You know. And I thought that was really interesting. And it also ties in um, with the ancient ballads, you know, that 
natural element. I mean, this is the only natural element that you get in urban oh, right. <laughs> living, right? You get the rats the and the nimble, roaches. The nimble-footed roach. Right. Yes. So I thought that was really, I don't know, I just found it charming. It reminded me actually of um, an Ingeborg Bachmann radio drama called The Good God of Manhattan. I know that one. Oh, really? It's really good. Okay, yeah. So she has these two squirrels who, like, deliver messages to the lovers who are are in danger by the good God who's, Mm -hmm. like, the judge of their their love. Um, But they're actually, they're not familiars yet. But I like the turning. Like, I like this pair. Yeah. Yeah. That that's what, that that's what she, or he, the, the, you know, the, the protagonist here is, is looking to for his yeah. guides or something, but that's not going to help you, really. they carry him, right? They carry his body west? Yeah. Is that what she's suggesting? So it seems. I don't know. Let rats and roaches bury me. Is that what fruging me, bury me in state. Oh, no. At the fruging oh. comes earlier. No chick who saw me fruging. She says frugging, I think. <laughs> No chick who saw me fruging. We we know what fruging Wait, means. Wait, do you Laura. want to repeat now that? Now we do. Yeah, now because <laughs> well, you mentioned I'm, it. Well, I'm, I'm the old, oldest one in the room. I mean, the frug was a dance. Yeah, I found it, was it a on dance. Google. Oh, yeah, you it was. You can, and you should, there should be YouTube, probably me oh. doing the frug. <laughs> um, now, she's very hip in um, in coming up with the, but, so I'm not really clear, Richard, help me out here. I'm just, maybe we're not supposed to be clear. I can't tell where her voice is not ironizing this speaker um, because I, I'm with Corey in thinking that this enacts a bad version of the westering or the re-westering mm-hmm. that she would like to do at the end. Um, I think she finds herself, biographically we know, I think she finds herself something in this position in New York with respect to the proper ladies. Uh, mm-hmm. So I can't really tell. You know, I, this could be her junkie song. I don't know. And it doesn't matter really that we sort that out. Probably not, right? It seems satirical, no? I don't it know. It does, yeah. How does she perform it? We, we're, Palm Talk's going to use the audio only, but we've all seen the video. She's pretty happy with that performance, isn't oh, yeah. she? Yeah, yeah. The well, junkie is happy. I mean, as far as Obliviously happy. Obliviously happy. Richard, say something about the visual visual quality of that performance. Those glasses are great. The eyeglasses. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's a little uh, gray gardens, but uh, yeah, it's yeah, a little gray totally. gardens, right? It is. Yeah, I that's mean, that's really what this is. And I I do think I don't I don't uh, dismiss that being part of her uh, what what charmed uh, the Beats and Duncan that they're that that her. Victorian uh, inheritance um, uh, was something that 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 to have it appear. I think that 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 was a, an element of it. Um, so there is that camp um, aspect to it as well. Did she know she was being? I'm going to say used, but I don't because I, I can't think of another word. Duncan surrounded himself by dames, mm-hmm. his his older ladies. He had a group of them. I don't know you if she was maidens? one of them. The maidens. She yeah. wasn't one of them specifically. She was, yeah. She was. Yeah, yeah I think right. so. And did she know that she was in an entourage? My understanding is that Duncan um, was so um, attractive a figure that I don't think people uh, knew uh, because they so wanted to be in that circle. Um, that that if, I mean, it's a little, it's an awkward comparison, but it's a little like Warhol 
I think that some people wanted to be connected, and if that was that was use, and then in some ways that's symbiotic. Um, and I think they were close to Jess also. Oh, like in, for sure. Yeah. yeah, with the collaging and we usually uh, when we wrap up the conversation we usually go around and have everybody say one final thought that we didn't get in the record i'd like to vary that a little bit and ask each of us to say what we think either the what is the reason for continuing to read and study and appreciate helen adam or as an alternative to that um what do you see today or recently in poetry that is indebted to this. We've we've sort of talked about that latter one, but so let's go around. What why should we why should people listening to this go and get Kristen's editing work and 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 and, and learn about Helen Adam? Why is this important? Laura, do you mm-hmm. want to try that? Well, I will reiterate that earlier point I made that I think that the way that she has taken a traditional form and um used it subversively in a con- in terms of content, um, doing those feminist rewritings of folk tales and fairy tales, um, that that, for me, is what I found really compelling about her work. Um, so I think that's a great, valid reason to keep reading her. Great. Richard, your thought on this? Yeah, I think that there's... Uh, Historically, uh, the fact that she was um, so close to so many of these figures and that they really did get things from her and, and ultimately were persuaded, I think that to, to know to know about the time, she clearly is someone that needs to be accounted for. Uh, so I would, I would say that. Um, I, I also would say that, that she is clearly a master of a, a particular form and that she's so invested in it that that her 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 talent and her fierce uh, devotion to it um, uh, gives us a form that in our moment when when we have a dizzying array of possibilities um, something that has this sort of geometry of this the the regular the algebra of it um, and that was something that that earlier um, when the word devotion came up I thought well what's sort of interesting is just how complicated a form like this is 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 that attention and uh, work is that is that where that devotional um, because that there has to be that sort of um, uh, work mm-hmm. interesting. Um, would you say that the devotedness, what, 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 say, people new to poetry could get from this is the result of many pages of um, the effect of devotedness to a form, of getting a traditional form right and mm-hmm. then becoming very, very good at it. Mm-hmm. And one can see the devotedness in that, in the collective work mm-hmm. in a way, right? I mean, this is something that maybe we don't emphasize enough in teaching people how to, why or how to love poetry. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, that sense of it all being a uh, possible form uh, uh, and that that we have to hold on to them. Now, yeah. it's, a, it's a different sensibility in terms of our relationship to tradition is that we, we could lose it all. And, yeah. and that some yeah. of it exists because we need to know what it's resisting or what it came out of. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that absolutely. I, I really like what you said uh, earlier uh, that when she was performing it, 
because she's so good at this form, she began to realize what she had written earlier needed a little, an extra beat here mm -hmm. or a slurred word there. And so in she's so good at it that she knew what to do on the fly mm -hmm. uh, to make this right. And that's the kind of um, iterative learning that someone who's an expert mm -hmm. gets to do. And I think when you look at this person swaying around with the big glasses, you think, well, she doesn't know what she's doing. Actually, she knows exactly what she's doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's a true performer. I mean, it's like a body memory kind of a body memory internalized yeah. Um, yeah. gestural um, swaying of yeah. whomever is watching. I mean, and also like this idea of work. I, what I love about her is this like formal compulsion. You know, it, it's um, it's really vulnerable, and this vulnerability is, I think, what's really lasting for me. Like that actually the form that she is so insistent on would maybe have and probably did keep her from a lot of from knowing a lot of people or from interacting and, and the levels that they were and and um and just and you know, compulsively like um maintaining her her own interests and her own um you know, the Scottish and the English ballads and the magic and the or the murder, the idea of a murder ballad, like that too, like you're talking about the feminist rewritings and like all of that actually is like a very vulnerable space or even like yeah. looking from different angles, but from the animal's position or from, you know, just. Is there an easy answer to this question, Corey? Why is Helen Adam not better known? There's probably not an easy, but can you try? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that. I went, I was talking to Laura about this earlier, and and I told you, but um, I went to the Buffalo Poetry Collection. There's, they have some of her scrapbooks. I mean, so she and her sister had like collected ephemera and and magazine, um, you know, thing, you know, pieces of paper and and article clippings and poems and and all of these images for, for since they were children and they had these huge scrapbooks and but she actually made her own into these into actually these epic narratives and one was i got to look at two of them the witches one and the magic one but they they have 18 of them and apparently there are 17 lost hmm. um so they have they just have all, all of these beautiful images and then captioned with with poetry fragments hmm. um and it's just so much work, and it would be so much work to to put out. But they're so beautiful. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's why. Like it's too. It's so much work because, because some of the so much really of the work was, is not quite publishable yeah. as a format. Yeah, I mean, it would it would be it would be very expensive to figure that out. And also, you know, I mean, because she was maybe today we would look at that as hoarding. I mean. I don't. <laughs> Sorry. Did I just say Helen Adams? Yeah. No. Well, you, you, today we would look at that as hoarding. I thought that was a, a distance comment. But look, how about quote. how about this? <laughs> in an Sorry. era when in an um, era when um, doctoral students um, have a, so much accessible, here's an instance where to study Helen Adam, you'd have to drive or fly to Buffalo, which is sure. not an easy thing to um, do. You'd have to, and Michael Bazinski is the you know easiest person to deal with who's very devoted to this stuff so you have to go into the archive and maybe we can just say the rare books and manuscripts department of state university of new york at buffalo will welcome you but you have to go there in order to do it and that's where we're going to have access to helen adam and that's in itself a reason why in an age where everything gets spread around 
Uh, even archives, it's very hard to get this one online, I would think. Sure. Mm-hmm. So but that's one of the reasons we don't, we're not talking about her. And she's not easily categorizable. Like, mm, you know, yeah. this, this is a huge, wonderful book, the Helen Adam Reader. But then we're also talking about her performances being so necessary to understanding, like, how clever she is. And then also these visual collages are incredible. I mean, maybe it's because we, I mean, just looking at her as, as a poet, um, solely is not, but I don't know. I don't know why that would deter anyone from studying. I guess because she's not considered timely, as you're saying. Yeah, and she wasn't formally inventive. You know, that may be the main reason. I mean, it's, yeah. it's possible, right? It's possible that we mm-hmm. have to just completely recalibrate what it means to be a radical poet. Mm-hmm. This has sort of been the con- what this conversation has been about. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to answer that. We went around uh, to talk about the, what, influence and uh, wa- a reason to study her. And I guess I would return to the Allen Ginsberg encounter. So in, in Helen Adams' interview with Susan Howe on Pacifica Radio in the late 70s, uh, and this recording is on Helen Adams' Penn Sound page, so you can listen to Susan Howe talking with her. She talks about Ginsburg and she says that she loves his sung ballads and says, quote, it's fascinating to me that he despised rhyming for so long, but now he can write these lovely rhyming things so easily and so well. <laughs> and so that's this, this circular influence where I think probably people said, hey, Helen, why don't you loosen up and do some long lines and participate in the Beat Revolution? And in the end, she's sort of celebrating that she was the one who convinced the other guy to to come around. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us or all of us, if you're quick, to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. And Laura, of, of the three people I'm looking at, you're the one who looks <laughs> like you have something to say that to recommend. Um, I've just really been loving these essays by the playwright Sarah Rule. Um, mm-hmm. Called It's called 100 Essays I Don't Have Time to Write. And it's, I think, newly out in paperback, and there are these teeny essays, 100 essays on <clears throat> all sorts of things. Um, she does write about poetry, actually, and um, playwriting and the theater and children and all kinds of things. And they're brilliant and and fun and really lovely. Terrific. Thank mm. you. Corey? What am I reading? Uh, yeah, I've been – so I've been I've – been, uh, Reading mostly novels by, um, recently I just read Astragal, the Albertine Sarazen that Patti Smith uh, introduced. Um, and I read Anne Goretta's Sphinx, which just came out in translation. She was a, she is the female member of the Ulipo, um, but she wrote the novel in like 1986, I think. Um, and it just now has come out in English. Um, and it's, it's amazing. I would highly recommend that. Great. Richard, so far it's all been, you know, pro- prose and fiction. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I'm going to uh, – I, I thought, though, I wanted to recommend an artist. 
Oh, great. Um, okay. uh, though she's an artist, but I, I recommend her because it seems to me kind of above a piece. And this is the outsider artist Madge Gill, who was born in the 1880s and died in 1961, thereabouts. So contemporary with the modernists. Uh, she's born in London. Uh, she's orphaned, grows up uh, basically on a work for- farm in Canada, moves back to London, marries a cousin. Uh, at about the age of 37, uh, she has um, a child who dies and st- uh, who's stillborn. Um, and after that point, uh, Madge starts hearing voices. Um, and where she had never drawn before, she starts to draw really obsessively. Um, because she has this particular spirit speaking through her that's uh, name is my interest or my interest. It depends on how it's inflected. And she makes thousands of drawings, and most of them are about this, uh, are, are drawings, portraits of this woman who could be the spirit or could be her child grown up. Um, and she's really become um, one of the most uh, influential or important outsider artists in London. But uh, her sense of being continually connected to the spirit world. In fact, she wouldn't sell her drawings because she thought, well, they're not really hers. They're the spirits, which to me, in terms of the, the, the capitalism that she's denying is, is fantastic. Uh, and she, like I said, there are now uh, lots of exhibitions that happen in, in London and in the U.S. around her work. But she's And say her name again. Madge Gill. Great. Wow. Well, I am, but because of all this interartistic recommending, I'm induced not to mention a poet. Um, I'm going to recommend, if somebody presses me to the wall and says, what are the five, you know, greatest books of the 20th century for you? Um, (laughs) Probably number two or three is Primo Levi's The Periodic Table, which is a really difficult book. So after trying various ways to tell the story of his experience in the death camps, he tried to do it through an allegory of the chemical elements. Mm -hmm. And, I, and each chapter is named after one of those elements, and it either is literally something that happens in the story that he tells, or it's some kind of uh, larger symbol. It operates symbolically or allegorically. Mm-hmm. And the and the one I would recommend is called Chromium, and I'm not going to try to explain it, but it'll it'll knock your socks off. Mm-hmm. So Primo Levi's The Periodic Table. Uh, Well, that's all the nimble-footed roaches we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing, CPCW, and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Karina Kopp, Laura Sims, and Richard Deming, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner and Ivana Kohut and to Poem Talk's editor, the aforementioned Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk, I'll be going on the road to the Renee and Chaim Gross Foundation in Manhattan to talk about several of C.A. Conrad's somatic poems with Erica Kaufman, Trace Peterson, and Gabriel Ojeda Segay. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>